Good afternoon, good evening, wherever you're listening, however you're listening. This is Quantum of History. I am your host, Donnie Waldron. This is going to be episode six. We're going to be talking about Thunderball today, guys. We're going to be talking about Thunderball, and more specifically, we're going to be talking about the Tongs. So I'll start with just the Instagram uh, award. It's now going to be called the Bond on This Day Award, because once again, Bond on This Day got it the first. So from now on, I'm not going to describe, you know, go over the specifics of it. The first person that gets the hint picture gets the shout out and it's now just called the Bond on This Day Award. So the winner of the Bond on This Day shout out is going to be Caleb from commando.bond.007. Now this guy certainly doesn't need my help in getting followers, but if you're not following him, go ahead. He's a great content creator. He's got a lot of stuff going on in the horizon. So follow him. He's the winner of the Bond on This Day shout out. And what else has been happening? Well, I got a chance to talk to Chris Morales from That One Bond Guy. And what a treat that was. We uh, we did it the other day, and it, you can follow it. It's now posted on his YouTube page. Um, if you're not following or subscribing to his YouTube page, please do. He's got a lot of the great stuff. He's really going to be uh, an up-and-comer, and he's really uh, he's part of the uh, class of 2020 here. So I'm very excited. Um, very excited to have talked to him. Again, great guy. Follow his page, subscribe to his stuff, and I can't wait to see what else he has coming forward. Secondly, I want to thank again David Zaritsky from The Bond Experience. I'm sure everyone that listens to this podcast has followed and subscribed to his stuff. He gave me another shout-out, and getting a shout-out from David Zaritsky is like being on Oprah's book club. It's just it's just great. Um, really adds to your views, and I, I can't thank you enough. You know, I always admire Dave and all he does and his enthusiasm and his work ethic, so... Anytime Dave gives me a shout out, I'm truly humbled, truly gracious, and uh, thank you so much, Dave. And uh, good job, Joseph Darlington and everybody, Scott and all those guys on their Quantum of Solace debate. That was four hours of Quantum of Solace debate. That was impressive, guys. I wish I could have been in there more. I, I was at work while it was going on, so I had to, had to pop in and out. Now, I wish I could talk to you guys about the, the case I'm working on because I think as Bond fans, you guys would really like what's going on and what I'm doing, but uh, it's got everything. It's just been a huge indictment that I'm doing. It's been about five, six months long case. And now that it's almost getting wrapped up and coming into fruition now, you know, politicians are getting involved and they're going to fight over who actually gets the glory for it. And, you know, like the old adage, success has a thousand fathers and failure is an orphan. Now that it's all buttoned up, it, I mean, it's got not just the case itself, but it also sh- shows the nuance of how politicians get involved and they want to take the glory for election season. So I wish I could talk to you guys more about it. Maybe I can in the future. But So right now my time has been bouncing around. It's, it's just hard to get into these things. I wish I could get into more of them, but guys are doing these great live streams. Guys are doing these great cocktail hours, these Zooms. So it's been exciting stuff. It's been a great time to be a Bond fan with everybody that's doing so. Um, exciting stuff. I mean, four hours of quantum solace. First of all, it's not a three. It's a three. It's got its flaws, but this is coming from a guy who gave, you know, for your eyes only a nine. Like, come on. Another congratulations is an order from Ray from the Bond Armory. Uh, he locked down an interview with Walther. Uh, I cannot wait to see this. He's got a lot of stuff on the horizon. I know that him and, and Caleb are doing a collab too. So that's going to be a really fun. And, you know, when you know some guys just have it all. You know, Ray's got the looks, the charm, the smarts. He's well endowed. I mean, this guy's got everything. 
And now, not only does he have great content, a thousand subscribers, interviews with Walther, but now he got a shout out in an erotic novel. Yes, that's right. An erotic novel paid homage to the Bond Armory and Ray specifically. Now, like I said, some guys just get it all, you know? And uh, I cannot tell you how jealous I am that he is now in erotic novels. But I'm going to one-up him. One day, you're going to hear Quantum of History in uh, Pornhub Premium. But until then, congrats, Ray. You got everything going for you. And, uh, you know, great friend, so follow his stuff. And Bud West from the uh, Bond Brain had a really good podcast I listened to. Uh, the Secret Service Holds Much That Is Kept Secret. It's a book about Alan Dulles and his spycraft. And, and if you haven't li- listened to his podcast, subscribe to his stuff. He's got great stuff all the time on there. So that's what's happened this week. Now let's, let's talk about what's going to happen in the future. Ladies Who Bond, That One Bond Guy, Fleming Never Dies, and James Bond Aficionado are going to hold on May 2nd, uh, 9 p.m. Eastern Time. They're going to be hosting another Zoom call. And... Uh, you guys, those are always fun to do. Uh, I've been a part of one so far, and uh, man, it was a lot of fun to do. So they're going to be hosting one. Those all four of those guys are really great. You know, Jocelyn from that Ladies Who Bond won the uh, Bond on This Day Award not long ago. I just did the interview with uh, Chris. You know, uh, Thomas from that Fleming Never Dies classed up my uh, podcast last time and made it way better. It's already got way more views than anything else I've done. So. Um, he's really great. And James Bond, uh, aficionado is a great dude too. So I'm really looking forward to that. If you guys put it on your calendar, May 2nd, 9 PM Eastern time, they're going to be doing the zoom call. So let's all, let's all join in and, uh, get our little squares in our computers and, and try to, uh, do some social distancing fun. So I'm excited for that one. And of course, all the other great content creators, if you're all subscribing to them, there's a bunch of podcasts going on. You know, another James Bond podcast. I mean, there's, there's so many. I, I can't even name them all in this one. So I'm excited for all the uh, all the content from now until the next time we meet. So follow it up. Follow up on these guys. Check them out. Follow them on Instagram. And uh, let's stay together and let's keep this content rolling. So without further ado, let's get into the actual podcast. We're going to talk about Thunderball. And we're going to talk about the tongs. So without further ado, let uh, Mr. Uh, Pussycat take it away with Tom Jones. Now, Thunderball is one of my six uh, Bond movies that I view as perfect tens. It's the last one where Connery is just the best. The next ones, all the rest of the ones that Connery has are just, they're not even close to the first four. So Thunderball was the last one of the great era, of the golden age of Bond. Thunderball opened in the U.S. in December 9th, 1965, and it was the highest grossing Bond film until Skyfall overtook it. You know, almost 50 years later. So it really is, it really was a great time to be a Bond fan. The hype, the hysteria, Bond fanaticism was at its peak. And Connery was the biggest star in the world. So it was great to see that even now when I watch these films, um, it still holds up. I can watch Thunderball anytime. 
any time of the day, anytime. I don't have to be some Bond films I have to be in the mood for. Thunderball, I'm always good for. I love the locations. I mean, Bahamas, I've been there. Um, it was definitely one of my best Bond locations. Beautiful beaches, beautiful town. Um, so much to do, and it's just it, what a way, what a place to get away. The opening shot with the jetpack is is cool. I wish you could have seen more of it. The fact that somebody actually did that stunt is amazing. I know everybody dogs on the helmet, but the stunt guy who actually did it would not do it without wearing the helmet. So that's why Bond had to awkwardly put on that helmet to make a match. But it was really great, um, and it's always I give so much more credit to these stunts back in the day when they're actually done. So it, I love that opening scene. Um, I love this jetpack, and I love the fact that somebody actually did that. Tom Jones is so good. I look, I mean, sex bomb, sex bomb. What's up, pussycat? Whoa, whoa, whoa. I mean, these are classics. These are lyrical geniuses, okay? If, any, if anybody gets Donnie Waldron in Quantum of History, I feel like Tom Jones gets me. So I love him. I love his songs. Um, and I love the soundtrack. I think it's really a great soundtrack, great opening, um, and one of the top five Bond film Bond uh, songs. When we move on to the Spectre meeting, that's a little cartoonish, okay? But uh, it's still fun. Like I can't imagine pitching that idea now. Like some guy Johnson comes in and he's like, "All right, guys, listen. All right, we're gonna do half a face, and the guy's gonna be stroking a cat. And he's gonna be way above, all right? But he's gotta be stroking this cat. And you can't see his face." And then there's going to be all these chairs and everyone's going to be chilling. And then all of a sudden, just we're going to zap some dude and he's going to fall in and he's going to be disappeared. And then everyone's going to act like it's normal. And uh, we're going to go back to uh, cat, cat guy. And then the studio zap just looks at him and goes, Johnson, I love it. Do it. Let's do it. I'm on board. Like, I don't, I don't think it would be uh, I think it'd be a hard sell nowadays. But I mean, die another day had an invisible car. So... I guess anything's possible. I like the Shrublands scene. I think that if you've read the books, um, you have appreciation for the Shrublands more than the book than the movie does because they just kind of you're just at Shrublands, whereas the novel kind of tells you that you know Bond smoking too much, drinking too much, he needs to get away and he needs a detox for a little bit. He's always much more flawed in the novel than he ever is in the movies. You know, he seems infallible in the movies, but in the books, he's so much more of a real person, so much more flawed. And uh, these things that he has to does take its toll on him way more than it does in the movies. I, I still like Shrublands. I mean, yes, the rack scene is ridiculous. <laughs> but <laughs> he definitely does look like he's definitely gyrating on that thing more than actually in pain. Um, and there's some minor sexual assaulting, maybe. But, uh, you know, he, he brings out the mink glove and everything's okay. So, well, it was the 60s. What a time to be alive, right? And Fiona Volpe, oh my, when she's on that bed and you can see those perfectly rounded, amazing, giant eyes of hers, they're just spellbounding. And what a what a great uh, villainess she is. She's both, you know, intelligent, smart, sexy, seductive, and evil. So those are the, always the, the most interesting characters, I think, in the Bond films. The underwater Geiger countering scene too. I, I think the underwater scene sometimes maybe the fight at the end kind of drolls on a little bit, but the, I think when he goes underwater to do the Geiger counter, I think that's really cool. The fight ends up and then he ends up on shore and Vienna Volpe is there to give him a ride. And uh, he's he gets a little bit of the pucker effect when she hits 90 going around these things. But I'm going to contest that that's nothing. When my wife came to this country and I had to teach her how to drive, 
I don't know if you've ever taught an Albanian who's never driven before how to drive, but that is far more dangerous than going 90 on a Bahamas road with Viana Volpe. Okay, she thought that just because you, the light is green that you can turn left, and you can't. You have to make sure that you have the right of passage. And I tried to explain this to her, and then she almost got me killed as she turned left in front of all the oncoming traffic and then yelled at everybody else. She's like, but I had the green light. I said, no, but that doesn't mean you get to turn left. So I've almost died at least 500 times riding with her. So, I mean, Fiona Polpe, yeah, okay, you go fast, but you try riding with an Albanian that's never driven before. That's real pucker effects, sir. I think the nuances of um, Emil Largo and Bond when they're together and they both know each other, they both know that the other knows, but they don't want to let on that the other person knows. That little nuance cat and mouse game, I think, is the most interesting part of the entire of the entire movie. And it kind of gets lost in some of the newer Bond films. They forget that it's a story. It's the intrigue. That's what makes these stories and these movies so indelible. It's not jumping out of a plane and then landing in a, a, a sinkhole full of water. It is the story. And that's what makes it so interesting. And dialogue. Dialogue is such a lost art, it seems like. And people think that you know they need constant stimulus when it actually... You need good content. I mean, you can sit here and go through Instagram and flip through and see everything and just be visually stimulated. But what you go through the extra is to be stimulated both in your in your intellect. And I think that good dialogue is what brings that and you don't get enough of that. I can look and see flashes of anything. But to actually get good dialogue, that's what separates these movies. And that's what, what you pay for. That's why I'm going to invest my money. That's why I'm going to invest my time into these movies is for the good stories. The worst part of the film is the uh, the ending with the back projection in the boat and the speeding up the film. I mean, that's sloppily done. But when I, when I judge a film, especially an older film, I'm not going to judge it based on is it a problem of 60s technology or is it a problem with the story, the flaw, and the acting? Now, with the ending of Thunderball, the story, the acting is not the problem. The problem is that there's just not the technology in the back screen and they probably didn't have enough time and they were on a deadline. So... I, I give that a pass just on based on the time period and the lack of technology. It's not a story problem. It's not an acting problem. It is a problem with just technology. So I give that a pass. So that's why it still stays a 10 to me. So why are we here today? Well, when Bond is in Shrublands and he's talking to Count Lippy and he notices the tattoo on his forearm and he notices that it's a Tong tattoo. It's like, why does a white guy have a Tong tattoo? And who are the Tongs? And who are these people? And why would you go call all the way back to London on your time off? And I wanted to research that. And I wanted to see why anyone would, why Bond was so intrigued about it being the Tongs. So I started researching the Tongs and seeing, you know, why did Bond, why did Bond care that he had a tattoo on there or that tattoo was on him? So with any organization, you know, there's reality and there's lore and there's history and somewhere in the middle is the actual story. So this is more of a lore story, but this is what the Tongs say their, uh, their origin is. In 1647, a community of monks who lived in the Fokin province of China became Fokin monsters of the art of war. Now, a prince invaded China and the emperor sent 138 of these Fokin monks to defeat the forces. Now, after three months, these Fokin monks routed the opposition. And when they came back to the Fokin province, they were showered with Fokin gifts and honors. Now, when these Fokin monks came back to their regular Fokin lives, they were revered, they were worshipped, and the emperor got jealous, and he was scared and jealous of these monks. One, he just watched how they just destroyed 
um, a route of a routing an invading force, but also that the people were just so enamored with it. So in response, the emperor actually attacked the monks um, without warning, and they used heavily armed imperial guards. And it was said that the fires from this attack were so high that the immortals in heaven could see. Now the immortals saw that the wrong was occurring to the monks, so they came down to earth and they actually moved a wall, allowing 18 of these fucking monks to just... First of all, I'll make this joke all day. I, I, I can tell you I'm not sick of saying fucking anytime. So bear with me. I'll make this joke all day. So hang in there. Now, 18, 18 of these fucking monks escaped, but um, most of them died of their burns. Only five survived the actual attack, and they were able to get to a city in the Fokin province where they started a first section of the Tong today. Now, it's called the Triad. Now, the Triads are pretty well known, but this is supposed to be where they started. Now, when the Triad Tongs were formed, their aim was to overthrow the emperor who had so badly betrayed them. The five monks who founded the triad are known as the five ancestors. Now, these ancestors led a revolt against China or against uh, the emperor, and it failed. So after it was failed, these were these five ancestors were scattered throughout China, and they established the five provincial grand lodges. And to become a member of the triad involves a ceremony. So this is what it says. This is what one story of what it takes to become a, a triad member of, of the Tongs has. Initiation into the triad is based on a blood ceremony. First, the ancient five heroes are invoked by an incense master who offers libations of tea and wine. The candidate for initiation is challenged at the entrance to the lodge by guards carrying razor-edged swords, and he is allowed to enter only after answering a series of ritual questions as he crawls under cross swords. Once inside the lodge, the initiate participates in a lengthy reenactment of the traditional ordeals of the five ancestors, he swears 36 oaths and learns his first secret signs. Then a rooster is brought in, beheaded, a warning to the initiate that he will suffer the same fate if he, if he betrays the tongs. Finally, he, mix, he drinks a mixture of blood, wine, cinnabar, and ashes. And in times past, blood was used to be drawn from the initiates and other actual initiates of the lodge. And today the blood is generally just that of a slaughter rooster. Um, so it's basically like when you join Costco, they do the same thing to get your Costco card and it's worth it. Those deals are amazing. Do you know how cheap feta cheese is? Now, as is what often the case, um, criminal organizations will change just like, you know, modern day cartels or whatever they'll start. And if whatever they're doing in crime, they try to keep the, the home populace on their side. So they actually started, um, as do also giving protection to merchants from inner, um, oppression that was felt within China. So they actually were brought as a, in as a, not only just a criminal enterprise, but uh, anti-emperor, but also as protection for these merchants. By the mid-1800s, the United States was trying to get all these railways done. Now, the Chinese immigrants were seen as the best workers for these railways. They were best for bridges, railways, tunnels. They were like the engineers. So when they came over to the United States, um, they actually started with the railways, but when the railways were done and completed in the late 1800s, then those jobs were sewn up. So then they became merchants and they set up shop. Mainly San Francisco was the biggest hub for these uh, Chinese immigrants. So they were honest merchants, businessmen that looked to combat discrimination within their own culture. But when they came over, they also brought the Tong system with them. And as these Tongs came to the United States, they tried to keep the same attributes. 
And along the Pacific coast, these Tong villages grew and they morphed and due to the dynamic needs of the people, um, and infighting and discrimination within their own ranks happened. Not only just the fact that United States with, you know, the Chinese exclusion act and all the, uh, the, uh, racism that was occurring to them, but within their own culture, there was oppression. So this is where the Tongs came in and where the United States Tongs came in. And usually when a society or a cultural group is in despair, um, there's threats of violence, extortion, and these opium dens, these gambling dens, you know, the United States was kind of, was still Puritan at the time. So when these Chinese immigrants came over, they brought over their opium and they also brought over gambling and prostitution, which of course is not viewed highly in puritanical sense, even though they still do it. Um, so these opium dens became infamous and the Tongs were, were renowned for both running them and protecting them. Now, these Tongs started these clubs, but, you know, as with any criminal organization, as the money grows, factions split, and infighting occurs. Um, so without the backing of laws to protect these business enterprises, violence is the way that they protect your interest. So infighting fractures formed within the Tongs, and they grew to become known as powerful, intimidating. Um, it's a violent organization within the United States ranks of immigrants. And modern day, you see this now with MS-13. So MS-13 was not started overseas. It actually started in L.A., in the jails of L.A. Um, El Salvadorian um, immigrants came over, and they saw how L.A. gang culture was, and they needed to incorporate that to protect their own. So they started their own criminal enterprises in L.A. Well, when they got deported, they went back to El Salvador. They brought the L.A. gang culture that was you know, manifesting itself in Los Angeles to El Salvador. Now, once it got to El Salvador, they brought that um, gang culture to a head and it became perverse. And that's what happens oftentimes with these criminal organizations is they may start as protection and try to be a beneficent organization under the mining of, of criminal enterprises, almost like a Robin Hood kind of deal. But when you forget that that's your main goal and you start focusing on the violence and all that and you, they, you lose sight of what your actual main goal was, that's when you get these perverse organizations and the Tongs were kind of the MS-13 of the time. So from 1870 to 1900, New York's population quadrupled in size to almost 3.5 million, making New York City the second largest uh, largest city in the world, only behind London. And at this time, Tammany Hall was ran New York. Now, Tammany Hall was a Democratic political party, and they were renowned for rigging elections, corporate bribes, extortion, violence, uh, Boss Tweed and his gang had a stranglehold on uh, New York. Now, New York was an ever-growing dichotomy of extreme wealth and extreme poverty. And the Chinese immigrants were some of the lowest-regarded minorities in the city. Now, you look at the fights between you know Irish immigrants and Italian immigrants and Jewish and all this. There's kind of the same. They speak the same language. There's differences in your ethnicity, but you're kind of the same skin color. You're kind of the same umbrella. So it doesn't take that long to assimilate. Now, in regards to the Chinese, there's a huge language barrier. You look a lot different. It's much harder to overcome these initial wave of um, racism that happens with immigrants as they come to the country than it is for the Chinese, who are going to be wearing much different clothes. They're going to be speaking much different, have much different mannerisms, and they stay together. So it was it was very easy for them to be the most oppressed. And in New York City, they often lived in the most squalor of squalor. 
So, of course, what what do you need now? Now you need a gang to protect yourself. So the Tongs knew that this was New York was a breeding ground and a perfect time to come in. So in 1870, a man by the name of Tom Lee was sent from San Francisco to New York, and there he was going to help organize the Chinese situation in New York. Now, the Tongs and the Chinese immigrants in San Francisco had been a success story. They had actually found and they are flourishing, and they were well-established. So Tom Lee looked to go to New York and recreate what they did in San Francisco in New York for the Chinese. Now, Tom Lee spoke pretty good English, and he even had a, a, a Caucasian wife. He had a good understanding of both Chinese and American politics at the time. And upon Lee's arrival in Chinatown, he began implementing taxes on leadership of various Tong groups. Now, what was smart about Tom Lee is he understood how Chinese worked, but he also understood how America was working at the time. So he would collect these taxes, basically extorted businesses, but he would take the money that he used from extorting and criminal enterprises and, and prostitution, gambling, opium, all these. He would use that money, and then he would go pay off politicians uh, at Tammany Hall. So that was important because that actually raised the influence, and it gained the Chinese um, influence that they actually had a voice somewhere in politics. And it was also good for the politicians to actually have somebody that they could talk to in Chinatown to gain their influence. So Tom Lee became so much that he actually um, was appointed as a deputy chief. Apparently there were stories that he even walked around with like a little badge and stuff on there. Tom Lee was very, very, very proud of the fact that he had worked all the way up to become uh, an influencer in Tammany Hall. And he should have been because he was the first Chinese American to ever, the Chinese to ever get that kind of prestige. So Tom Lee was part of the Anyang Tongs, and as they saw that Tom Lee was almost had almost autonomy on the money and influence that was going on in New York, they became a new, but he was viewed as corrupt, and he was viewed as the evil part of the Tongs. So a new opposition came and a rival in the form of Hip Sing Tongs. Now the Hip Sings gradually aligned themselves with the opposition of Tammany Hall, which was led by a Methodist minister, Charles Parkhurst, and uh, eventually an assistant attorney, um, Frank Moss. And he, came, he comes later on. But they, Hip Singh tried to make themselves out to be like the good guys, where actually they were even more violent than the An Yong. Where Tom, Young, Tom Lee was very much trying to keep the peace in order. And yeah, he had to do bad things. He had to pay off. He had to do bribes. He took part of it. He had these evil, extravagant um, dinner parties. But that's how you got things done. And he used his influence and in some, he paid off police. He paid off politicians. He got influence within the, in the community. So, so by the mid-1890s, Teddy Roosevelt became the police commissioner. And he opposed sweeping reforms through Tammany Hall, through police. And he tried to weed out and clean house of everybody that was um, corrupt. He was kind of an idealist. And Teddy's a man. Like, the dude rides a moose in the Amazon. I don't care if that story is real or not. I don't care. I've seen the pictures. Teddy Roosevelt rode a moose. Now, this created a stir within the tongs. So before this, they were kind of, you know, verbal altercations or someone would get beat up or there'd just be arguments to go over um, the hip sing versus the on yang of Tom Lee. Well, this morphed as pressure came and it wasn't just a uh, who paid off who. It became actually people were going to jail. People were getting losing their spots. People were actually getting punished for the uh, corruption that was happening. And this led to tensions between the Hip Sing and on, on Yang coming to a head. 
now up to this point, An Yong and Hip Sing were just fighting in, you know, maybe a fight here or a beating here, but no killings had happened. And Mok Duck was now taking over for Hip Sing. Now Mok Duck was a notorious violent killer. And when he kicked over control, he was just waiting for the time. So in the early 1900s, a guy named Long Ging, and he was a member of the Hip Sing, he was killed by an An Long member. And that opened the floodgates. Now, in response to this guy, Long Ging, being um, killed, the, the An Yong then started to kill Mok Duk in a failed assassination attempt. So, Mok Duk of Hip Sing then starts killing An Yong. Now, the An Yong then come back and try to do an assassination, assassination attempt on Mok Duk. And that was all Mok Duk needed. At that point, it was hellfire on everybody then. So a series of killings happened, and one of the most famous ones was when a member of the An Yang that beat a murder charge for killing a Hip Sing, they actually had a party celebrating his acquittal from trial. Now while he was there, while he while they were having the party, Mok Duck and six other ones came in and started firing upon that party and trying to kill as many An Yangs as they could. So it ended up being a bloody warfare in New York and it was basically in a small geographic area of New York where the Hip Sings and the An Yang were fighting. Because of this um, thing in Chinese culture called Nianzi, or I guess in English you'd say face. So if you kill somebody, I'm going to kill you. Hammurabi's, you know, Hammurabi's Kobe, and in Chinese it's called Nianzi. Um, and that's what it is with these criminal organizations. So if you get killed, you want justice to be happening for you. Now, in a civilized society, we have trials, we have jail, we have all sorts of things to get justice. But in a criminal organization, you don't have that. You have no backing. So there's only one way to do it, and that's to get a retribution in, in, the, in the idea of eye for an eye. So if you kill one of my guys, I'm going to kill one of you. The problem is that it's never just square. It's never just, okay, well, you killed my guy, and I, you killed my guy. All right, we're cool. It ends up being, well, I, now i got to kill your guy again. And then you, and it just and never ends. And I see it a lot in, um, in you know, places like Baltimore, you know, Detroit, all all these, all these violent places with a lot of um, drug activity, and a lot of infighting, a lot of criminal organizations that have to police their own selves and refuse to talk to police. Um, they're not going to help police. They're not going to be witnesses to police. Police are to stay out of it, and we're going to handle it ourselves. And the way that they handle it themselves is through violence. And so that's why these bodies were falling all over Chinatown. In 1929, Hip Sing, An Yang, and four brothers got in a meeting of another truce. And they got one more accord where they actually said that any dispute that happens is going to be a third-party mediation that's going to happen, that's going to solve these problems. And it was a genius idea for the time. And, um, and then two weeks later, the Great Depression hit, or the Black Tuesday hit. So that kept everything quiet for a little bit of time. And then there was one more eruption when um, another person was killed, another An Yang was killed by Hip Sing. So violence happened throughout the nation, and they thought it was an organized hit, but it turns out it was personal in nature. And in 1933 is actually the official end of the Tong Wars. They had one last accord, and by then, the Great Depression had taken hold of America. And look, I mean, it was survival at that point. You didn't have time. There was no more funds. There's no more war chest. You're not going to be able to go out there and kill everybody and fight over things because nobody has any money any left. And what's interesting about the Tongs is that 
when the soup kitchens and the Christians were going around New York City and throughout these places and, and serving food to the people in the most need, whites and uh, Caucasians and blacks were the ones that would go to these soup kitchens, but the Chinese refused to go to these, these outreach, these soup kitchens. Instead, they actually went to the Tongs, and the Tongs are the ones that actually took care of the ones in dire straits. And the Great Depression hit, it lasted for a long time until World War II happened, and then by the time World War II is over, um, all these all the generations of hard fights were still not forgotten, but there was new leadership within the Hip Sings, within the Anyang, Tom Lee was gone, and um, it was time for the Chinese to become legitimate. Now, there's still factions of the Tongs throughout the United States, and they're still alive, and there are still things in China and all that. But for the most part, people had gone to legitimate industries, restaurants, laundry, dry cleaning, um, things that are still seen today in, in um, predominantly Chinese um, villages or, or sections of cities. So I had a lot of fun researching this topic. Um, I had a lot of fun looking at why James Bond cared so much if Cat Olympia had this innocuous tattoo. So look at the tongs, the triads. I'd heard of them before, but I didn't really know much about them. So it was really cool to delve into the topic, to understand more where they came from, how they settled in America. Um, I had a lot of fun, you know, researching guys like, you know, Mock Duck, the Fukian province. Um, I had a fun time talking to you guys all about stuff. And, of course, I had a fun time talking about Fiona Volpe's perfectly rounded, big, beautiful eyes again so i'm kidding it's all about her boobs all right guys thank you so much for coming in thank you so much for tuning in this is episode six this is thunderball this is tongs thank you so much subscribe to me quantum history follow me on instagram quantum history thank you so much stay safe out there avoid the rona and as always take care guys thank you so much 